Welcome to Jukebox's newest podcast. I'm Matilda Bray. And I'm Ned Chapman. And today we're going to be talking about English literature and hopefully for all the continuing episodes of the podcast literature as well. But yeah, this is still in its like development stages. We're very much in an embryonic kind of <laughs> beginning stage. No, no, no. <laughs> but we just wanted to come on here to talk about some books we've read mm. and just basically to like to have a little bit of a conversation and hopefully... Yeah relate books to modern modern ideas and just just talk have a nice discussion so hopefully you can enjoy that with us yeah today we wanted to talk about Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen <laughs> today I'm gonna sing Cher Lloyd by Cher Lloyd <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't know how to flush that <laughs> today we're gonna be talking about Northanger Abbey which is Jane Austen's first novel and I thought we could start off by maybe reading you guys a little bit of my initial thoughts that I had after finishing the novel over summer or lockdown. Um, I'm not going to lie. I didn't enjoy Northanger Northanger Abbey that much, but I know that Matilda did. So I'll read you my thoughts. Ned's opinion is wrong, just so you know, objectively. But that's the point of today. We're here to talk about it and say why I thought it was boring. Mm. That was a bit of a giveaway, wasn't it, of my opinion? Okay, so... On the 16th of the 5th, which is March, 16th of March, 2020, I wrote, buy this book. <laughs> Not March. <laughs> January, February, March, April, <laughs> May, May. Yeah. <laughs> buy this book, I was not greatly moved or did feel wholly and vehemently inclined to sit and read all at once. I liked how Austen can make very mundane and normal situations feel much more momentous than they are. In a sort of Russian formalist kind of way, I re-experienced life in another form. The end almost felt like a movie, a bit unfinished with a few insignificant lines left to finish the story. I was not sure who the narrator was, because they seemed to be both inside Catherine's mind, but not at all part of the story. I feel like the novel was sort of mostly about the personal journey of a young woman who seemed reasonable and good-natured, but not nearly as much of a heroine as the narrator portrays her to be. One thing I disliked was how much this book made me want to do other things apart from read. (laughs) Might be a while until I read another Jane Austen. On to the challenge of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina we go. Oh, that was so cute. Thank you. <laughs> and very, very profound. <laughs> I felt like you were affected by Austen's writing style. <laughs> I was vehemently affected and wholly unmoved. I feel like I was doing that thing that people do when they're over-pretentious to, like, to overcompensate, you know? Mm, yeah, I suppose. But I feel like sometimes when I read books, then I try and emulate the author's style or the char- yes. a trait about the character afterwards you, you know when was do you know do you know when this was written or like what century it was written in yeah uh, so i think originally the first draft was written in 1805 i think that might be wrong maybe it was 1798 and then it wasn't published until about 16 years later because of uh, austin's struggles with well getting it published and then also she wanted to preserve her an- anonymity and is things. this as a woman that she struggled to get it published uh, I think so. I've read a bit about it, but I think that it got sold. The rights got sold to someone, and then they got sold to someone else, and then they stayed in the family. So she did write it quite, start writing it quite early on, but then that it was redrafted later on, and so that like it's a question that they, that I've read people discussing about about um how much the changes, how many changes occurred from her 
in it from the original draft so to the later stages. The book that we read probably is the later publication of it. Uh, or, or the first one. Yeah, no, the first one, the one that got published in 1816, I think it was, is the version, the closest thing to the version that we have now. Our edition obviously isn't quite the original, but yes. the I read the, I actually don't know which which edition you read. I read the Northern Critical, um, and uh, at the beginning there's an introduction about how the editor tried to stay quite faithful to the text. I don't know, bios. Which is definitely a positive thing. Mm. Mine says complete and unabridged, but this might just be a marketing ploy. Yeah, who knows? Um, so, yes. So we're saying early 18th or 19th century. Yeah, so let's say 1860. So this is a Victorian, yeah? Or am I a little bit out of whack there? Uh, I don't... No, or is King, that later? King George is still on the throne. Do you want me to look Victoria it up? Victoria starts... Uh, I can have a look. But anywho... <laughs> <laughs> Victorian era, 1837 to 1901. Okay, so pre-Victorian era. Yeah. So before the propriety... This is Regency, I believe. The Regency era? Yeah. I did not know that thing. Yeah, I think that's Regency is what comes before. And like, if you think of like the aesthetic, it's like those dresses, you know, with the really high right under the chest. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, and like Jane Austen vibes. Like, Did you know that they did that? And they had them, the dresses, they had them really high up and really puffy underneath because Mm. it was like fertility was the mm. thing that all women basically wanted to have and that was like the desired quality in women because obviously they were just meant to have babies. That's so cool. Well, it's not really cool, is it? <laughs> but it's a cool yeah, piece of little trivia. Yeah, but it's cool for you to know. I yeah. think during that peri- during the period of like the 1700s and 1800s, there were a lot of like massive changes about uh, w- women's wearing dresses that hadn't really, that in the past had stayed more stationary. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this isn't literature, but um, during that time, yeah. I think Louis Vuitton was early 1700s and no he had way. A, yeah, a massive effect on how fashion. I, I'm not enjoying that this is recorded because I'm feeling like someone is going to actually fact check this and I'm going to be way off with my dates and things. But you know what? It's fine. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so I'm actually going to be the person that steps in and corrects my mistake because I would leave it, but I think it's pretty egregious and actually pretty embarrassing if I leave that. I'll have to tell Ned that was totally not what I was trying to go on about. Um, the person I was thinking of was not Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton was early 1700s and he did have a really big effect on particularly changing in suitcases and luggage bags and uh, changing the shape and the material and then creating a brand around that and a brand identity. And you can still see that in the brand today. But what I was trying to think of was um, as a woman called Marie-Jean Rosbatan, who was a marchand de mode in France, and she was basically Marie Antoinette's dressmaker, and she basically influenced, kind of instrumentated that whole period of French fashion, which is Marie Antoinette's kind of signature thing, if you think about it, just super extravagant, and what would happen was that it would just be her and society, the French, French high society, trying to go more and more extravagant and so the fashions would change in a matter of weeks or days and so I think that changed attitudes towards how quickly we could go through fashion obviously that all ends in French Revolution and everybody gets their heads chopped off so not the greatest I just wanted to step in and correct that and because it was just I it was too wrong for me to let it go. So yeah, I'll just let Ned and I keep talking now. Let's talk about beauty standards. Let's talk about Woo. 
Well, let's Everything. talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Let's unpack that. So, <laughs> your first impressions. Okay, so should we go through what I said? Mm. Okay, so I was not wholly inclined to sit and read it all, so I found it boring. Mm. Very mundane and normal. Um, <laughs> Russian formalist kind of way I re-experienced. What is Russian formalist? I have no idea. Basically, Russian formalist, they were like, they were these literary like theorists, like critics, mm. and they were kind of around 19... Beginning of the 20th century in Russia, so kind of both Bolshevik Revolution kind of time. Yeah. And they basically advocated the view that when you read a text, you must only look at the text. You do not, like, take into account anything outside of the text. You don't care about the author. It's as if they didn't exist. And you basically just read the text and analyze the text as, like, a compilation of different literary techniques and, like, basically words. And that's how you see Austen's view to be? Through no. Or? Basically. Sorry, yeah. I'll, I'll elaborate a bit. Mm, please. But basically like one of the questions that you have to think about with russian formalism formalism mm. is so like say you're looking at a text 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 autonomously so it's just on its own what actually makes something worth like reading as a text of so what makes something literature mm. so by like paying attention to a text you have to basically make a value judgment and know the context so you're inherently including the context in your decision to criticize that text because you're saying that this is different kind of formation of words than you would use in normal day-to-day life if you if you kind of mm. get, one, get where I'm coming from yeah so basically you're you ha- you are including context whether you like it or not so the Russian formulas were basically flawed from the beginning right but basically something that they do is because it's so like separate from the world or so meant to be I'm doing air quotes here mm. separate from the world it means that you kind of re-experience what like like I don't know like experience things in a new way because they are so separate but i suppose you also re-experience things because we haven't lived mm. in the period before the victorian era yeah i'm just trying to see where this comes into Northanger Abbey. i kind of see what you mean <laughs> and i kind of think that i must you're have thinking been, past ned you yeah. don't know what he's thinking oh, completely do you ever get it's that fine. though you're a new person yeah how many months are we on 10 10 <laughs> <laughs> considering you thought it was march <laughs> i don't think you're the one to be doing the math oh dear oh dear but i think uh, we're about seven months on from ned at that time and oh you're a dear. new person every single day so yeah you're yeah. so far so let's talk about the domesticity is that a word domesticity yes let's i think make so it a word. is that something you talked about in there that's one of the reasons i found it boring because it wasn't very adventurous so what's hmm. your take on that well first of all maybe i'll address my first impressions is that that's I really loved it. Um, so me and Ned, when he read... Do you still think it's a boring book? No. After talking about it with you, I don't think it's a boring book. But just for the sake of devil's advocacy, mm. we are, I'm saying... I'll have a conversation with past Ned. Um, <laughs> that I really loved it. I really like Jane Austen. She's rolling her eyes right <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a Jane Austen stan. She's. <laughs> I just think... Her book, her novels are so fun, and I think the even part of it that you found boring, which I think it, we'll talk about, that you kind of found it boring and mundane and like slow moving, um, is kind of part of what I enjoyed, and that I, because we've discussed that I kind of like social commentary and looking at how people yes, relate to yes. each other, and so just watching the interactions of people, especially in such a different period, like. I just had a lot of fun just like watching Catherine go to walks and stuff. And then I enjoyed all the all the action that does happen and 
I think she's so funny and I think she's got so much wit. You think Catherine's funny? <laughs> I do agree that she is quite uh, funny. Austin. Oh, Catherine. Or oh, no, Austin. Austin, sorry. yeah. I, I do see what you mean. I really like how she writes. And Can you think of an example when you found her funny? Oh my God, putting me on the spot. I really am. <laughs> I'm testing um, you here, Matilda. She's just got quote. such like a sharp tongue and and like the book is a satire, of course. So, um, oh, so do you want to care to elaborate on that? What's it? What's it satirizing? Yeah, shall we get into that? The um, so we talked about it's kind of a distinction from what you were talking that when you were describing to me what a Russian formalist is. Um, I thought, wow, that is such a difficult approach to take to this book because when I've been thinking about it, I've thought so much about the context in which it was written and the time period and what Austin was trying to say because of course she's talking about like the com- uh, so- social commentary of how people behaved and wh- what they should do in the time that she was living in um I'm sorry what was the point I was trying to say I don't know but I really think that's really interesting <laughs> because I actually think that this book without its context without understanding a bit about women's role in the time and just mm. understanding that society wow yeah. that's a new word that society a bit more i think that this book does become rather boring oh uh, yeah i was talking about why it's a satire right that um and so i think one of the main things of it and that you get it from the very first page is her um you know how she calls about how she calls Catherine, Catherine a, heroine. a heroine should we do a quick overview of the plot no no just read it guys <laughs> You can't listen to this podcast if you haven't read the book. I'm so sorry. Unless you just want to hear me and then ramble for an hour or so. Yes. Um, so novels are kind of like an important thing in a kind of meta way that novels are discussed a lot within this within novel. Book. It's like Inception. Um, and from the very beginning on like the first page, first sentence, no one who had ever seen Catherine Morland in her infancy would have supposed her oh, born to be an heroine. So it's taking the pee out of like out of novels while also <laughs> being a novel. A novel. No, no. It's basically um, Catherine defends the novel within this because at the time, um, novels were viewed as really like lower, low class. From what I understand, like low class entertainment, and that the things you should be valuing are like poetry and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all these things that great men were writing but novels which i think were also associated more with women writers were really disregarded because they were more domestic and less adventurous that's do you think there's a bit of inherent misogyny in the fact that i didn't like this because mm. it was more domestic and because it wasn't so adventurous i don't think you having different tastes in what you like to read unnecessarily founded in misogyny although it's true that a lot of our preferences in our lives are based on prejudices that we're not aware of like you know that women enjoy makeup and they absolutely have the right to but that a lot of the foundation of that is an internalized male internalized (laughs) male gaze that kind of tells women that they have to be prettier and that they can't just so that they should be interested in that yeah that's really interesting so that's why boys don't have the same thing yeah my yeah i think so i think a lot of the things that we associate with gender and that maybe we say oh, people just lean towards this. I think that there are definitely difference, differences that biological sex provide, but that maybe they're not so as fixed as we'd like to say. Little plug, read Gender Trouble by Judith Butler. Ooh. This is this is an idea. I was, I was talking about this in my English class mm. the other day. It's about gender performativity. Mm. Have, you, have you heard of this? Yeah, yeah. But it's basically when it basically says that like your gender isn't like obviously as with race, gender is a social construct. Mm. And so... We don't, we are not our genders. 
we are like impressed the, the genders we basically <laughs> society forces us to act in a certain way mm. that conforms to like masculine or feminine ideals yeah and so we are not embodied by our gender and we are simply putting it on but probably not consciously yeah i think that was a real bastardization bastardization <laughs> of the concept of dear so we were talking about i was talking about it being a satire and that uh the novel reading aspect um she paints Catherine. She talks about her being a heroine, and she mentions that so much throughout the book. I felt like, you know, how she'd always yes. just like, yes. Catherine, the heroine, the heroine did this, the heroine did that, um, and then a couple. A young heroine. Ah, uh, <laughs> the little Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> this actually ties into something I said later in the book. I said about her being called a heroine, but her not really being a heroine. Yeah, and I think, and that's, ki- I think, part, kind of part of the point. Yes. That at the beginning, like what she says, that she doesn't seem like a heroine. And then she paints her, because I think also you have to think about the context of the books that were, the novels that were around at the time. And obviously, and those influence Catherine throughout the book. So the mysteries of Udolfo. She reads all these novels that are about like adventure and gothic, uh, gothic kind of horror yes, things. Yes. Um, and she brings those into her real life. And you know how she goes to the Tilneys and she thinks... Yes, yes, at Northanger Abbey. Yeah, at, at the Abbey. And she's so excited to go to the Abbey because she wants this kind of adventure, this kind of gothic this vibe. gothic experience. Yeah, it's kind of exciting thing where she thinks she's going to be like chased down corridors and there's going to be a man who murdered his wife and yes, yes. all sorts of things. It so felt she comes a bit Jane Eyre to me. Yeah. Very Jane Eyre. <laughs> yeah. And she comes up with all these crazy thi- well, not all these crazy theories, yeah. but like one about is it General Tilney or Major Tilney? Or yeah, the- well, it happens like a couple times in a row, yeah. which is so fun. With, with what's it called? The um, the, the wardrobe, not, not the wardrobe. Yeah. The closet. No, that's not the right word either. I think it was a wardrobe. It's um, a chest of drawers. Do you think? I don't remember. It's some furniture. Yeah. With the drawers or chests or... And she finds it so... Mis- there's a chest. No, there's a chest. And then there's also a wardrobe. Yes. And on the way there, uh, Tilney, who's her like love interest, is, t- fan- is like spinning this fanciful story because <laughs> he knows kind of how she's... So like she gets carried away by her imagination. And I think that links into like... How, her naivete which is like such a big like she's so naive throughout the whole thing but i feel like she does kind of become educated over the book i think she does improve but like she's still just, not yeah the dramatic irony of just like how much the reader knows of what's going on that she just is absolutely oblivious our to. young heroine <laughs> oblivious to all <laughs> young catherine knower of so little yeah, well, because obviously, like, the context of within it that she um, that she was raised, like, with her family, who's, like, moderately wealthy. And, and she's then, quite moderately, pr- well, she's moderately good looking. Yeah, well, she was kind of, like, clapped as a child. <laughs> Got Matilda. A <laughs> <laughs> Jane Austen she, frames it more nicely, but yeah. yeah, but then she gets prettier. And then, like, her first experience in the social world... Of the time, in the, isn't it in the tea rooms and then in the yeah, ballroom? in the pump room, in the pump room. It sounds so exciting. Wouldn't I- you love to do that to have some <laughs> afternoon tea in the pump room? I feel like it would be so fun in Bath to be like, yeah. Obviously, like most of the people at the time were like in workhouses and whatever, and like living awful lives. Yes, yeah. Um, but like if you were in 
Austin's stratus of society. You could just like yes. go, you'd wake up, you'd read a novel for a few hours, lunch. Not too bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> head down to the pump room, dance in some balls. That would be so fun. Imagine if we still had balls. Yes, imagine. But I think potentially, especially for women, that life was rather yeah. pointless. Yeah, no. I think pointless. Is that not, what you'd say? Not, not pointless. I mean... <laughs> not much was achieved or because of the social like constructs at the time it meant that like the opportunities that women had weren't the same as men at all mm. which is women were so limited obviously in what they could do and it's kind of a great tragedy of how many minds we haven't been able imagine, to imagine oh my god imagine all like all the extra sh- stuff that we would have <laughs> found out over like the two billion years that whatever we've been here mm. if women had been counted as much as men had mm. and then even beyond that like well obviously that's a big slice because that's 50 percent of the population yeah. <laughs> but also then amongst that like even like the classes of the races and like all yes. these prejudices which have probably slowed us down so much because we could only but, listen to but yes. without these prejudices do you mm. think that perhaps we wouldn't have many of the theories that we have today and many of the ideas do you know what i mean um, I think we wouldn't I, have communism if communism if we didn't have classes. Is communism such a bad thing inherently? Ah, <laughs> no, no, I wasn't <laughs> suggesting that it was a bad thing. Um, I think it's so hard to imagine history without, and even now, without being riddled with prejudice all the time, and then even what you define as prejudice. Um, what is anything? <laughs> is the world real? and i think that we wouldn't be on the same trajectory but that and i guess that having this super elite who can all just like propel each other rather than having a more equal society in a way probably allowed things to develop in ways that they couldn't have but i think equality is usually for the best oh yes we are agreed here (laughs) i think we agree in that okay should we get back to Mm. ja N A, no, I think F, but B. Okay, <laughs> shut up, man. <laughs> Back to Catherine. Well, did we finish on novels? Yeah, just and then she has this whole. Austin has the the narrator has this whole kind of, just like a mini rant where she pauses the story for a little bit, and just starts talking about how great novels are. It's like her defense on novels. Yeah, you know how poets write on defense of poetry. And on defense of all sorts of these things. I'm thinking John Stuart Mill. Poetry should be overheard and not be eloquent. I can't remember. That's not the quote. Mm. But (laughs) yeah, I'll shut up now. Actually, no, no, I won't. This is my podcast. You're not. This is our podcast. (laughs) Listen. (laughs) Say whatever you want. (laughs) We're 22 minutes in. So yeah, you chose to be here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you're still here, you should stick with us through the end. Like, congratulations on making it through all this waffling. Might as well waste more of your time. (laughs) Um, okay, one thing I think that is interesting about the novel, though, please. and just like English literature as a whole, is mm-hmm. that until literally a hundred years ago, or maybe I don't know, around then, like you couldn't even study English at university. It wasn't it wasn't a discipline or seen as like yeah. a respected discipline yeah. at all until very recently mm. in modern history, I would say. I think that it was kind of also just expected that as a fine, eloquent person in society. You would read literature. Yeah, like in Shakespeare's time, it was like standard that people could just like think of sonnets off the top of their head if they were like that. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Shall I compare thee? (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
That was some ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make it too uncomfortable for our listeners. What listeners? <laughs> okay, okay. We are the only people who will ever hear this, and probably my mom. Oh goodness! Hi, Pam. <laughs> Hi, Pam. <laughs> Is um, your mom not going to listen? <laughs> let's talk about that later. <laughs> okay. So yeah, what else? What else are you thinking? Okay. Um. So novels, yeah, and just that whole thing of like how underrated they were, and Austin's basically. And her like whole family, they seem like a very nice bunch from what I've read. Really? What, yeah. what, what, what? That they were all like great novel readers and that like wow. a lot of her early writing, that she would read a lot of what she'd written to them and they would be like her first test audience. Oh, so <laughs> they'd be like her publishers. She'd give them her works and they'd be like, mm, no, change this, change yeah, that. Yeah, well, after like she'd it. written, it seemed like she'd just like go down and read it to them. And she was, a lot of the time that she was like writing to entertain them. After a one long day of novel writing. <laughs> Jane went downstairs and by hand. Imagine everything was just written by hand back in the day. Yeah, no, I watched this film that was um, it's called Mary Shelley, and basically (laughs) shows Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein by hand for the whole film. That's it. Yeah, no, not not the whole film. (laughs) But I recommend that film. It's actually really good. Yeah, it's got starring Percy Bysshe Shelley. Ooh. Yeah, um, definitely a good plug there Mm. that you should read. Well, they're not sponsoring us, so maybe we should bleep out the name of the film. No, it's fine. (laughs) Netflix. It's not by Netflix, but Netflix. Someone I'll give you us. this one. <laughs> Someone, <laughs> some film company, pay Sponsored us, and we'll shout out your film. <laughs> Sponsored by Sugar Bear whole, Hair. <laughs> to the whole Wellington College family. Um, but yes, and then also satire and like lots of things, and how she's just poking fun at society as she sees it. So we could talk about like wealth. That's a big factor yes. in Austin novels. And how she is completely disregarded because of her wealth. Who, Catherine? Catherine. Do you want to well, tell the readers about this? The readers? The listeners? Well, as you have all read the novel before listening to this, yeah. which you must, <laughs> it's required reading. We will be checking. Mm. Is, yeah, by the way, there's a test at the end. <laughs> um, so Catherine comes from a moderately, a moderate family, as we say. They do okay. Kids. Yeah, they're not like down in the dumps, but they're not like high up there. Um, and... And then Catherine goes to Bath with this childless couple, the Allens, and she's there and she makes these friends and basically the, the, the confusion lies mainly in that General Tilney, who's the father of her love interest, Henry Tilney, thinks that she's rich, very rich because of another guy who they've all, they're all under the impression that she's really wealthy because of the Allens who are quite well off. Um, and then the climax of the story kind of comes when General Tilney finds out that she's not at all and that he, and he'd been encouraging her to pursue marriage with Henry and then in the end he just sends her very dramatically, very suddenly it away from the dramatic. Abbey. Yeah. And then like there's this whole thing of like that he sends her and then it's just like she doesn't have any money or anything. And it's actually very rude and it like yeah. you have to cut that out. And it's scary, not like if you imagine like back in the day, like what's she gonna do? What bandits she... around the corner yeah. going to kill you. <laughs> like she makes it home luckily and the and the her friend Eleanor gives her some cash, but otherwise like she would have just been stranded halfway through the journey. But then love does Love prevails. Love does prevail. Yeah. So do you wanna explain why love prevails? <laughs> <laughs> Matilda, do you want to explain everything about oh. books? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
we're going to be talking about this later. (laughs) (laughs) Then I will be having a discussion. Um, Well, he sends her off, but then Henry comes to her place. Where does she live? Fullerton. She does live Fullerton. Mm. She... uh, so she lives in Fullerton and then he comes down and he basically professes his love. Because General Tony says that he will give them money, doesn't he? Well, in the end, so he, Henry asks her to marry him. She says yes. And then, but then his father won't allow it. And so then he leaves. But then for a few months, they're just like waiting, waiting around for Tilney to allow it. And then he does in the end because he has like a good day. And then he's like, oh, young people will do whatever they want. So YOLO. So yeah, to let them marry. Yeah, it's quite love is love. <laughs> just a little twist at the end that he's like, oh, you know what? I wasn't gonna allow, oh, but yeah, whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Another his... satirical thing. Mm, hello. To redirect us a little bit, please. Women, women, femininity in this, and the role of women. So one character, which I like vehemently, as I wrote in my little diary entry, I vehemently disliked, or not vehemently I... disliked, but found a little useless oh there are some characters that i hate in this i'm so excited to talk about them she she was just boring and i think thought that but she was probably had the potential to be quite a satirical character in commenting on women at the time so Mm. it was mrs allen oh yeah you really don't like her i thought she was boring and i thought that she was very shallow and i thought that she was a classic example of a woman who completely constrained herself by focusing on very material things and but did women constrain themselves or were they cons- <laughs> no i yes that's that's very good correction because they didn't constrain themselves mm-hmm. at all because yeah. they were just constrained by the expectations of the time yeah. but i feel like jane austen probably didn't constrain or broke free of these constraints mm-hmm. and was able then to like reflect on her female counterparts mm-hmm. that she saw mm-hmm. such as people who are represented in the character of miss allen and thought you know what, I'm going to represent these women who don't do anything. Yeah. Um, I think Mrs. Allen, I think she's kind of funny because she's always, like, talking talking to Catherine about her. Like, when they first go to Bath and they're in the pump rooms and no one knows them, and she's just like, oh, gosh, I wish we knew someone. She like, makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah. But I think she's... You hate her, but she's kind of funny. No. I, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of right. No, I just think she's very, very insecure and very focused on society, but I guess everyone is. Yeah. Then. yeah. Like that is kind of the like the way for a woman to be elevated. Mm. Feel your station to be improved is by marrying rich, which is not great. Yeah. But it, how it was. How it was. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought that. Yeah, I think she's quite, quite kind of vapid. That, yeah, that is a good you way to You were complaining the other time about how she's always talking about muslin. She's always talking about her dress <laughs> and about what her dress is made of. And I just thought, while well, I was reading it, you know, I was like, you know what, miss? You need to shut up because shut I don't up, care. dress! <laughs> I was like, find something else to do. And she didn't read, did she? Mm, I don't think so. I can't remember if she commented on novels. Neither can I, but I feel like she might have been the one who, been one of the characters who said, oh, I don't have time for that or something like that. Ugh, you know who said that they hated novels, who I hate? Who? Uh, what's his name? John. John Thorpe. Oh, we hate John Thorpe. Oh my God, he's, he's the awful. worst. Ugh. He is awful. This podcast will, from now on, be called the John Thorpe Hate Club. Literally, <laughs> he is actually the worst. Yeah. So he, the he, worst human. If he was alive Full today, stop. he would be the biggest misogynist in the world. He would be. I feel like a bad feminist talking to you. You're like, and women didn't have any rights, and I'm like, yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> Damn right. But he was awful. He was like kind of coercive. He was slimy. He hung <laughs> off Catherine like... Oh he's my just God. the worst and he just wants her for her money and then when she when he finds out that she's not even that rich then she goes to the general Tilney and talks about how poor she is which isn't even true she's moderate so basically he's chatting ass behind yeah. her back yeah he's being a hater <laughs> he's hating on Catherine and she's just doing her vibes yeah. and I can't she's doing her thing and he like he's always like when he come when they come to pick her up in the carriage and then she can't come and then he, he just straight up lies to her. Or when Catherine has an engagement for the next day and she says she's not going to change her engagement to go with him. And then he sneaks off to go talk to the person she has an engagement with. Yes. That is some snaky stuff. He is snaky as hell. Yeah. I could not stand him. But and he like also criticises novels. I think General Tilney is probably the ultimate villain, but he was really bad. And then Isabella's also kind of Bad. Isabella is also kind of bad. I didn't really I like her like, from the beginning. I feel like she's the best friend that your older sister wouldn't approve of you having. <laughs> and then you find out she's right eventually. And then you found out your older sister yeah. is right and that she was right from the beginning and that yeah, this yeah. person was a bad influence. Yeah, and I think even from the beginning, I just felt like she would say all these things and she was, like her and her brother are quite similar. Like she would say all these things of like, Catherine, you are the light of my life and you are the best thing that's ever happened to me. You know when me. people are too like that. Yeah, okay and I'm like okay well that's a bit odd and then she'd she just make comments about Catherine that are just like not true at all she's like what does she say she says something like your arch eye has noticed it already when she's talking about her engagement wow and yes. it's like so are you actually clueless she's fake basically yeah she's fake and then she just dumps she's engaged to Catherine's brother yes who we do like him. I don't yeah, like yeah. him yeah he he's a nice. sweet dude he was so sweet and I was so sad that Isabella broke his heart. Whatever, she did yeah, she's annoying anyway. Yeah, but I'm sad for him. Oh yeah, very much. Um but so Isabella gets engaged to Catherine's brother and is all, all on about how lovey dovey she is with him. And then Henry Tilney's brother, who is also pretty sucky. He is. Is this Captain Tilney? Yes. Yeah. It's confusing because they're all Tilneys they're and then she calls confusing. them blank Tilney and I'm like, Oh, I just want people I was like, to have which names. One is that? <laughs> <laughs> And then the fact she called them John and James, and sometimes they'd be like, oh. I'd be like, uh, wait, let is me that just... her brother or the guy he's trying to get with her? Like, that's a bit <laughs> awkward. <laughs> wait, you can hear. <laughs> it, it, yes, it is awkward. <laughs> um, but actually, I find that when we talk about it, they kind of the story comes back to me, and I maybe see it in a bit of a distorted way, but I see it in a way that I enjoyed it, enjoy it a lot more than when I was actually reading yeah. it. Maybe it's can be like if you don't like the slow moving stuff and I say obviously that's down to just personal taste that maybe a Austen book is more fun to look back on rather than to experience and to like to debate about rather than to actually yeah yeah, yeah completely so I think there's a because I think there's a lot to talk about completely completely yeah. that's what I think about about English literature a lot of the time actually that like the fun of it lies in the conversations afterwards yeah I think that's true but I think you shouldn't diminish the value of the pleasure of reading. Oh, like, not at all. I no. just mean some things aren't very pleasurable to read, but mm. they are very fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Or alternatively, things which are very pleasurable to read. Tintin Abbey mm. by William Wordsworth. I've, that's another plug, really. No. If, you, if you're listening, read that poem. Brilliant. I hope Wordsworth is paying you to say this. From his grave, <laughs> yes. <laughs> he is paying me. But... <laughs> Isn't it a surprise? Hashtag ad. <laughs> yeah, but that's an example of a poem, right? That is beautiful to read and mm. beautiful to talk about. 
it's brilliant mm-hmm. and i think possibly we should even talk about it on a future episode of this podcast we've got lots of plans we have many so i plans. hope you guys who are still here after how long 30 whole minutes whole minutes whole minutes that you've just been sitting here listening to us babble <laughs> <laughs> literally hope that you're looking forward to us talking about poetry and literary theory and all sorts i think that we should do a poetry reading at some point yeah that would be really fun i think it's fun if we can like read different little sections of whatever we're talking about sure 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 <laughs> so one of the reasons i think that i found Northanger abbey a little bit like wading through cement <laughs> yeah, was probably that. the language style i often find that when people talk very like ostentatiously using very big language that it sort of detracts from the overall message of what people are what's like being said so for example i could say something like i was walking down the street and you'd understand what i'm saying Mm. or you could use ridiculous scientific technical jargon to describe you walking down the street i think though it's a hard line to to define as to what is just pretentiousness and what is necessary necessary or enjoyable because i feel like sometimes like i can talk and be like wordy and say or like when i'm writing i'm be be, saying things and i'm like god this is probably annoying to read but this is how what i mean yeah and i feel like i couldn't express it in different words so you think potentially it's more specific when you use more big big (laughs) big Big words (laughs) no but i know i know exactly what you mean because they often they often have more specific meanings yeah and just that i don't know it's just that when you and i think you're right that people can be pretentious for no reason no reason and it's like just say what you mean don't try and create an impression of what you're trying to say it frustrates me when people speak to make to to make an impression rather than speaking for the sake of saying what they want to say can you explain what you mean by that i'm a bit confused i feel like i feel like you see it in like social situations as well kind of that People will say some, and I know this feels very contradictory to explain, but like people will say something so that the receiver will have a certain impression of the person who said it. Like when people are so trying to make themselves things, look cool, kind of. Oh, so they say things for, example. for like, so say I'm like, I hate this person. It's because I want to impress you yeah. rather than because I actually hate this person. Yeah. Okay, understood. I I like it when people say what they mean <laughs> oh i very much agree so basically you just like it when people are straightforward yeah but i think also that being straight because f- like you can write an essay of like well austin could have chosen to be like these are the things i want to say about society and then she could have written an <laughs> essay and maybe we could say that's more straightforward than writing a novel and then letting us kind of but that's through. artful mm. but ugh, you just get into this whole issue of like there is no direct way to say something because anything that you produce can be interpreted in many different ways yeah yes everything is like words don't have a fixed meaning what about the dictionary so you can have a definition but if we say a chair is actually i can't think of a definition of a chair what is neither can i shall i look up a definition of a chair? yeah why don't you define a chair for us and then it's not really important but if you want to draw one up chair definition a separate seat for one person typically with a back and four legs yeah so but even within that like so you can say okay that's what a chair is but then where do we draw the lines of what the word chair means 
very interesting because you, it says typically with a back but that doesn't so is a stool a chair is a stool not a chair is i'd it, feel weird to say a stool is not a chair is an arm spinny chair? chairs that we're sitting on right now are they chairs they don't have four legs they have one central beam yeah. that <laughs> comes up from the bottom and five one two three four five starfish like projections <laughs> that basically roll around on the floor so yeah. is that a chair i mean yeah. it has a back but it doesn't could have we not legs. call this a vehicle <laughs> so the fundamental question to life and English literature is what is a chair? That's it guys. <laughs> so now that we've found out everything that there is to be known, that's the end of the podcast. Um but yeah, just uh oh, saying things is just so complicated and if I think about it for too long my brain will just shut down. I completely agree. <laughs> but yeah, I know yes, I agree. Um is there anything else d- that you think we should discuss about Northanger Abbey? Northanger Abbey. Do, 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 do. Oh, get her a record label, we somebody. Sing, sing a little song about it. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Ned and Matilda the Rappers. Yes. What would be your rap name? We're doing English literature, <laughs> Matilda. <laughs> is rapping not literature? No. And too no. trappy. No, rapping probably is literature. I've heard in one of the IB... Higher classes, Dr. Sturgeon is doing... Classic oh. Sturgeon. Stur- Sturgeon. D- <laughs> Sturgeon, Nicola Sturgeon. No, Dr. Sturgeon is going to do... I know, it's a- sorry, sir. Imagine if you listened. Let's get him as a guest. No, yeah, we should. He's doing... He's so smart. Yes, he is. Oh. Let's stop flattering him on here. <laughs> he, he listened. Okay, basically... I'm only supposed to compliment people behind their backs. Okay, sir, <laughs> we really appreciate your teaching if you're listening. <laughs> Okay, go. Um, say what you want to say. But now I've forgotten what I was going to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, basically he was going to teach, he was teaching one of his high level classes, oh, yeah. song lyrics. And a few years ago, one That's of the so teachers cute. who has now left was teaching his high level IB class for English, Kendrick Lamar lyrics. Damn. Which they didn't enjoy very much, but. No, why not? Um, Because I thought, I think that they found it a little bit difficult to make it like technically literary, if you know what I mean. Hmm. In, in comparison to something like perhaps Tintin Abbey, yeah. which is full of metaphors or all these literary devices because they're from people who are basically scholars of literature. Yeah, yeah. If you get, if you catch my drift. Mm, no, I think it's hard to look at things that we don't also, also for an exam, like it's difficult when you know that you have to be like talking about techniques and things, but like when we're discussing this, we're not saying necessarily like... There's a sejura. Yeah. <laughs> On Mon, I kind of feel like is the most pretentious word in the world. <sighs> it's just like when when we're looking at a poem and then someone's like, "Yeah, there's a lot of enjambment," and it's kind of like I say enjambment because I feel like I'm <laughs> like a because you're just edgy. No, because one thing that I think is interesting about that word though is that there's I feel like there's almost kind of an inherent enjambment to the word enjambment because it kind of carries <laughs> on. Do you know what I mean? In between these three phrases, enjambment. Yeah, do you see what I'm saying? It is like a very like continuing Exactly, word. Exactly. It that flows is quite interesting, well. isn't it? Not yeah. ironic, but like, it's interesting. No. Yeah, um, it is. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, another thing I found that? quite interesting. Mm. Were you at that talk last night that was about memorizing poetry? No, I wanted to go, but I had play rehearsals. <laughs> Basically, one concept that was introduced was by Miss mm. Sagers, and she talked about this idea by someone, Baudrillard, I think it was... Jean Baudrillard or something like that. Yeah. But it's basically the idea that 
you can contain something or you can more truly represent something in like a small microcosm of it mm-hmm. than what it actually is. So she gave the example, you could more truly represent Britain in a theme park, like theme that was had like had all the components of Brita- Britishness in Britain mm. than actually in Britain. Do you, do you kind of understand what I'm saying? Or do I need to explain a bit more? Like that you can capture the vibe. That you can basically <laughs> encapsulate the truth of something yeah. within something a lot smaller than it is. But do you mm. think that if you do that, then you can actually capture the essence or the truth of what something is? I don't know. From what you said, like the thing that strikes me is that the enormity of a concept like Britain. Yeah, yeah. When applied to something like Britain. Yeah. That to try and look at every aspect of it in any meaningful way would not necessarily be would for one be an impossible task yes (laughs) (laughs) and then would also not like meaningfully add to your impression but i'm i'm struggling to see that there's a truth of something that's what i think that's what i think i agree with you there i Mm. think that if you say say you try and encapsulate britain in britain in a nutshell britain in a theme park Mm. like you wouldn't be able to because I think you'd only include what you like perceive Britain to be or you'd make this really, really idealised version of Britain, mm. if you know what I mean. So you wouldn't be able to capture the truth of what it was yeah. because it would just be parts of it. Yeah, or it would just be like what your what your, it, what your perspective of, yeah, yeah, of exactly. Britain is like. Oh, we are all just so constrained by the world that we perceive. God, if someone listens to this... <laughs> <laughs> like we are like as humans like reality is just kind of our perception of it and you kind of see that you know like in yeah you don't do tok i don't but you could explain something interesting from tok to me no (laughs) (laughs) no sorry (laughs) um like it's weird talk it talks about knowledge and stuff and so we were saying about like uh reality is just it's not like what you perceive to be reality is really just a perception and so you can see that in like things like optical illusions where so it's this video and if you haven't seen have you seen um it's this basketball experiment and they ask you to the gorilla yeah that one yeah where they are where there's a bunch of players and they're like playing basketball and you're supposed to count how many times they pass the ball um and then people watch that video and they count it and then and then if you just let them watch it again there was actually a person in a gorilla suit that like but only once they point out the gorilla do yeah, you notice that people there is didn't a notice on first watching because of the way that they focus and so when they watched that video were they perceiving the reality of it or were they were just perceiving their own perception wow, <laughs> wow. oh my god perceiving That's the reality so of it so perceiving what it is or thinking about what they saw the first time yeah well they didn't see what we would say it is but and yet they were watching the video they were looking yes, at it so yes. how how and so and so reality is mostly just a construction of what our brain expects so how much do we how many gorillas do we miss <laughs> and no no on a serious no, no, note I see how many gorillas saying. do we miss in our perception of our day-to-day lives yeah did that make sense how yeah. many gorillas do we miss each day how Each many? moment. Every second. Every second. I could be staring at Matilda right now and there could be a dragon kind flying out of her ears and I wouldn't notice it. Do you think? <laughs> Maybe that's a bit of a... <laughs> <laughs> the world in which a dragon comes flying out of my ears so when I want to live. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so mm. I'm not going to lie. I think that perhaps we should conclude. Perhaps we ought to. We ought. How about? Oh, I know. I know what's fun to finish off. What if we read just the very last bit of the, like the last sentence or so? Go on. Because okay, this part is a part that is kind of confusing to me, and I feel like either I'm not intelligent enough to figure out what's going on here. Well, let's let's. Or, <laughs> or that because this is Austin's early work, that maybe she hadn't perfected, like how she was trying to do things. Although she does make a comment about how. Um, in novels, it always seems that you have to tie up everything so like neatly at the end, and so maybe she was just making a comment on that. But let's just see. To begin perfect happiness at the respective ages of twenty-six and eighteen is to do pretty well. And professing myself, moreover, convinced that the general's unjust interference, so far from being really injurious to their felicity, was perhaps rather conducive to it by improving their knowledge of each other and adding strength to their attachment. I leave it to be settled by whomsoever it may concern, whether the tendency of this work be altogether to recommend parental tyranny or reward filial disobedience. I think that what's kind of saying is like, this is kind of a broad thing, but like struggle isn't like when good things come out of struggle, like the struggle wasn't bad because it produced like a good reality. Yeah, and kind of what, she, what like she says in there, kind of the, the struggle might increase your happiness exactly but like they probably wouldn't they wouldn't be together probably i don't know yeah what do you mean i don't know i think that she is saying that the struggle was like a good thing in the end yeah um but also what she says about parental tyranny or filial disobedience and i kind of see i don't know i think it just confuses me a little bit because we see so little of Catherine's relationship with her parents i feel like and so then but she's not filial, so filial is son, isn't it? I think what she's saying there is just like ch- children. Ch- child being yeah. disobedient to their parents, right. I don't know, it just seems like an like in the first sentence of the novel, I see where she's going with it and how that ties into what happens in the rest. But in the end, like, yes, General Tilney doesn't want them to get married and all that happens. But I don't know, I don't know that Throughout the book, I was thinking about questions of, oh, should children disobey their society and their parents? Maybe it's by asking this final question. Mm. It is to do with the novel as a whole and tying, as he said, up like tying it as up in like a needle bow, as he said before, and like giving these kind of microcosmic. I don't know, hypothetical. Is that is that the right word? I don't know, but giving these kind of philosophical questions to end like. Oh dear. <laughs> to like finish the allegory of the story. Do you know what I mean? To kind of give like, you know that, so the last two lines of the book will be like, mm-hmm. and they live happy ever after, but now knew not to do this or do this or do this. Yeah. So it kind of, maybe it's taking the pee out of leaving the readers with a big question that's kind of unanswerable. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that, that she is, well, she's saying her opinion, but also that, that the work is questioning somewhat and that it isn't utterly tied up although she ties up a lot of other things and just like people just get married maybe a bit rushedly what did happen in the end to isabella um well her and G- general tilney were engaged for like a minute and then she sends that letter a hot minute 
just a a little minute and then she sends that letter to uh, to Catherine being like I'm so sorry please tell your brother I still want to marry him I hated her in that moment I was like Girl, if Catherine shut up. if Catherine had been like and so I forgived her and forgave forgave her I think we've been making it worse the entire <laughs> podcast it's fine for a whole 53 minutes <laughs> 53 minutes of this that if Catherine had forgiven I've just conjugate the word forgive three different ways <laughs> if she'd forgiven Isabella in that moment if she'd forgiveth forgiveth I got that <laughs> if she'd forgiven I would have been so upset <laughs> I would have been done with the book in that moment <laughs> um but yes do we recommend parental wait parental disobedience or filial tyranny wait filial <laughs> disobedience or parental tyranny I feel like they come hand in hand because I don't wow. think because if you have so smart. parental tyranny, Go so nerd. say your Great parents, point. <laughs> <laughs> so your it's parents been an hour. I'm getting so annoying. But, Go. If, Go. but I think yeah, I think what she's saying or so parental tyranny or filial disobedience. We'll read the last sentence again. I leave it to be settled by whomsoever it may concern whether the tendency of this work be altogether to recommend parental tyranny or reward filial disobedience. So should we commend? Did you say commend? Parental tyranny. Re- should does this work recommend parental tyranny or filial disobedience? But then again, that's a false dichotomy because they come hand in hand. You're not going to rebel against your parents if they're not trying to, if they're not tyrannical, are you? That's true because she is talking about like two different people within the relationship and the two different and different ways that they behave. But that's not really that's not a choice that has to be made. Explain. Well, like. If you are, if the child is being disobedient, the parent can still be tyrannical. It's not like one agent is choosing between tyranny or disobedience. Yeah, that does make sense, actually. So it seems like an odd question to pose. I guess maybe she's saying that, like, parents control, is parents controlling their, if, should you as a child accept your per, per, parents' tyranny, or should you be more disobedient and just, like, yolo it? Or should you as a parent accept your child's disobedience yeah. or become more tyrannical? Yeah. So where can we see, do you think we can see an example of this in the book? Parents being tyrannical? I mean, I think there's definitely like General Tilney and his whole thing of like being like, no, you can't marry her. But I feel like the people, the kids in the book, well, the kids, I say the kids, I mean like um, Catherine and her kind of mm, lover to be. Yeah, all her friends, basically. Yeah. But I feel like they weren't disobedient kids. They weren't... Well, I suppose that actually, that General Tilney, he's um, kind of tyrannical in the way that he doesn't want them to get married in the way he sends out Catherine rudely. He is very and rude. And all that, yeah. Um, and that she also kind of paints this picture in her head when she thinks he murdered his wife of him, like, being yes. so awful. Um, but then... And so Henry Tilney kind of rebels against that by then marrying Catherine, but... Catherine, whose parents seem really chill, and they're just like, yeah, just goes to bath for a couple of months, whatever. Yeah, she goes for for like for, the, for ages. <laughs> yeah, and then She's they like the allow her to life. do what she wants. She's not really disobedient. I guess those two go hand in hand. If your parents aren't controlling, how are you going to be disobedient? Because there's no constructs. <gasps> Social constructs. Ooh, Jane Austen. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I guess there's nothing to rebel against if your parents aren't. Yeah, I think I don't know. This uh, talking about that last sentence, I don't know, it just confused me and I don't really know where it goes and it's not all tied up like I'd like it to be. Like it might be in potentially another novel. (gasps) 
Well, shall we shall finish we off? I have to go get vaccinated. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to stab me in the arm and it's going to be horrible. And I'm not even going to get a cookie. I swear in third form when I did it, they gave me a cookie and then wanna, last year they didn't. Do you want to maybe tell them, tell me, tell them, tell them your will so there's like a record if oh, yeah. perhaps um, it goes wrong? I leave the podcast to Mr. Surgeon, Dr. Surgeon. <laughs> Ned will not be allowed to run the podcast by himself. <laughs> <laughs> I probably wouldn't understand how to use the <laughs> machinery. Um, but yeah, thank you for coming to our inaugural episode of the podcast that is yet to be... I mean, you will know the name, but we don't know the name. The podcast that is yet to be named. That is the one. But... We could call it that. We could We could call it that. We very well could call it that. Mm. But thank you so much and we'll see you yeah. another time. Thank you for listening. I'll be amazed if someone listened to this. DM our Instagram if you listen to this. <laughs> we don't okay. have an Instagram. Goodbye. Okay, goodbye.